Hello, everyone. Welcome again to the Rotten Horror Picture Show, the horror movie podcast where we talk about films off the Rotten Tomatoes 200 Best Horror Movies of All Time list. My name is Clay, and with me as always is Amanda. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm good, other than the mouse bite. The mouse bite? <laughs> it's a reference, Clay. Oh, I thought, I mean, I know we both have colds. Yes, and yes, you know you've got some shoulder issues going on. I thought there was just another thing you were saving <laughs> for the show. Yeah, I'm just uh, ambushing you with my legitimate health concerns on air. <laughs> I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> Thanks for it's the saving only way it. we talk to one another. Yeah, thank you for saving it for uh, uh, so we could actually get some <laughs> something out of it instead of me just having to listen to you. You know, content. <laughs> uh, today we are doing a f- pretty heavy hitter. As far as our list is concerned, we're doing Rosemary's Baby, which is number 27 on our list. It has a 96% Rotten Tomato score with an 87% audience score. I was uh, I was curious what the negative audience opinions of this movie uh, were. And so I pulled up some some Rotten Tomatoes reviews I want to read, but I'll do that later after, uh, you know, at the end. I cannot wait to hear those because I, I, I don't even know what they could say. They're pretty good. They're pretty good. <laughs> it really, you know, I found them interesting because it kind of, it, it shows you how subjective horror is and what, sure. what is scary. And it like, I, they are reviews from, both of them are from 2022. So uh, huh. it's, it definitely feels like someone whose um, experience with horror movies is a lot more modern and has a lot more mm. modern sensibilities. So uh, we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. Uh, Had you seen this one before? Uh, Yes, I have, but not not in a really long time. I was Mm. trying to think uh, when we watched it the other night how long it's been, and I I don't remember. I have like vague memories of sitting in my my very old apartment, like immediately post college, like watching it on a laptop. Oh yeah, (laughs) yeah. And that wasn't the first time I'd seen it, but I feel like that's probably the last time yeah. I watched it. The best, what about you? The best way to watch it on a laptop. Actually, you know, yeah. I will say <laughs> the one movie that I watched for the first time on my computer and that I thought actually it made the movie better was uh, Cloverfield. I watched that on like my old Interesting. Dell uh, desktop on like the VLC player or something in a, oh, wow. in a six by <laughs> 16 by nine little square. And, I thought uh, you were going to say host. No, that one. That one. Yes, that was. I, well, I watched it on TV. I watched it on the TV. Mm-hmm. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, Cloverfield actually. I don't know. I think it added to the fact that it was uh, supposed to be camcorder found footage kind of thing. Anyway, we'll talk about yeah. that if we ever get to Cloverfield. But <laughs> uh, yes, I've seen this a number of times. This has been a, a favorite of mine for a long time. I can't remember the first time I watched it, but I do remember liking it pretty much right away and I Mm -hmm. I, you know I think the thing that's so interesting about this movie is you kind of get new stuff out of it every time you watch it I feel like there's little details and stuff that you never notice until uh until you know two or three times and like Charles Grodin's mustache I don't know if I ever noticed that he had a mustache (laughs) in the second half of the movie which is apparently (laughs) from the book oddly enough but huh uh, what an interesting detail to hold on to I like that yeah apparently um Polanski had never adapted a book before and so when he adapted this he Mm -hmm. skewed incredibly closely to the book 
And uh, I think hmm. the producer, William Castle, said he didn't realize he could take some liberties with it. And so he puts stuff in there that's in the book that really doesn't have much bearing on anything, such as the fact that in the book, when she goes back to Dr. Hill, it says that he now has a, a thin blonde mustache that is hard to see. <laughs> I love that, though, because I, well, we, well, we can get into it. I don't want to go. I don't want to go too far now. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think then we are going to play the trailer for you, and then we will come back and talk about it. Seven, eight, oh. Originally, the smallest carpenters of nine have been broken up into four, fives, and sixes. This room, for instance, it would make a lovely nursery. Oh, it's a wonderful apartment. I love it. Let's have a baby. Really? Congratulations. Any cast of that has a herbarium. I'm going to have her make a daily drink for you. You're pregnant. Are you aware of the Hanford had rather an unpleasant reputation around the turn of the century? Awful things happen in every apartment house. Seems so happy and full of you. She said wonderful things about you and your husband. This is for you, for Roman and me. Sometimes I think they're too friendly and helpful. Guy, I have a pain. I'm so afraid the baby's gonna die. Pain like that is a warning that something isn't right. They're not setting foot in this apartment ever again. What about what's fair to me? There are plots against people, aren't there? Well, there, there's one against me and my baby. Don't be saying anything more about witches or witchcraft. We'll be forced to take you to a mental hospital. I haven't flipped on that. Patches, Dave. He told the doctor to make sure that you got the one that was on his bed. Read what they do, God. They use blood in their rituals. Monsters. You're lying! You're lying! You're lying! What have you done to it? Okay, Rosemary's Baby from 1968. Directed by Roman Polanski, written by Ira Levin and Roman Polanski, starring Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmare, Morris Evans, Ralph Bellamy, and grumpy baby Charles Grodin. He, I always forget he's in this movie, and it, it's always so pleasant when he shows up, because he's like... Grumpy baby. He's so young in this, and he, he is, he is so grumpy. one of the preeminent actors who is just excellent at being annoyed, like not mm-hmm. so much angry... Just annoyed. Yeah, a believable level of annoyed. Yes, yeah. Yes. Like, I would like to see him and Miguel Ferrer in a movie where you have (laughs) Miguel Ferrer, who is the preeminent asshole actor of of our time, or was, Mm -hmm. and Charles Grodin, the preeminent guy who's annoyed by people actor, and just see who who breaks first. God, what a combo that would have been. (laughs) In a movie no one would want to see. Except for me and you, apparently. I, I guess, yes. Uh, Amanda, what happens in Rosemary's Baby? A young wife comes to believe that her offspring is not of this world. 
Wayfish Rosemary Woodhouse and her struggling actor husband Guy move to a New York City apartment building with an ominous reputation and odd neighbors, Roman and Minnie Castavette. Mm. When Rosemary becomes pregnant, she becomes increasingly isolated, and the diabolical truth is revealed only after Rosemary gives birth. That kind of gives away the whole movie there. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny. Well, Clay, by this point, if you haven't seen it, it's your own fault That's if you're true. spoiled. That's true. It is 50-something <laughs> years old at this point. Yes. You know, it's funny. I remember the first time I watched this being very confused that the the characters' names were Castavets because Guy, the actor who plays Guy is John mm. Cassavetes. And so ah. I, I, I don't know why that just stuck in my head, but the whole time I'm like, wait a minute, but Castavets the character, but Cassavetes is the actor? <laughs> Maybe that's why that person really hated this movie in the reviews. I don't know. Deep but. thoughts from Teenage Clay. <laughs> I think I paid attention to most of the rest of the movie, but maybe I didn't. I don't know. I can't remember. Well, in case you didn't, Clay, mm-hmm. I can tell you some things you'll find in this movie. Please do. Some things you'll find in this movie include, quote, kind of fun in a necrophile sort of way. Yeah. That- <laughs> <laughs> Let's start off with a bang. I know that uh, things were different back then, and we're probably going to talk about that a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, like, <laughs> imagine. I would like to think they're not that different. No. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> that's it's such a wild excuse for, um, I mean, even if you don't count the demon part of it, he's having sex with his passed out <laughs> wife. And then he says it was kind of fun in a necrophile way as a way to kind of like ease the tension of what he had done, which is uh, uh, suspect at best. Yeah, I mean, yes, we can we will we will dive deep into all of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, You'll also find Roman Castavet spitting truth about the Pope. Yeah, this must be Sinead O'Connor's favorite movie. Although that's that's, yeah. It's a pretty dated reference, but um, a real tear down of the Vatican. Yeah, he really goes into it though with people he just met. Well, I mean, when you were born and raised to be the leader of the Satanist cabal that's going to bring about the end times, I, I think that's kind of one of your main talking points. That's true, and uh, you know, another thing that I, I it never really picked up on until I had been really focusing on it this time was how. Uh, deep the catholic runs in oh, yeah. uh, rosemary especially and mm-hmm. so to go see these neighbors and then just have him start being like you know the pope's a piece of shit and, and have her just be like uh <laughs> very interesting well, clay that conveniently leads us to the next thing you'll find which is rosemary acting like everyone's mom the first time they heard about harry potter that part at the end when she starts going <laughs> off about witches i was so conflicted because it's like, yeah, she's finally figured it out. But then in the back of my head, I'm like, she sounds like everybody's mom from 1987. Yes. And honestly, today. Yes, yes. Kind of. Where witchcraft is, is coming for your children and, and it's 1989 again with the satanic panic. Yes. Uh, you'll also find Vidal Sassoon. Yes. Yeah. It's very, you got to say it like that. A lot of um, very upfront... <laughs> reference and uh time given to vidal sassoon which yes, and, uh, and, and the haircut and the haircut yeah i you know that's one of those names that i only knew from shampoo commercials mm-hmm. and i don't think i appreciated was an actual 
person slash salon that you that people went to. Right, right, because there is no Mister Head and Shoulders out there. Right, it's like for th- <laughs> the first time I watched this, it was like she came back and said, "Do you like it? It's Garnier Fructus." Yeah. <laughs> Do you like it? It's Bath and Body Works. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a shampoo and a conditioner. <laughs> it's a three in one. Um, you'll also find drinking while pregnant. Yeah, yeah, along with so drinking while pregnant. Much. Um, she, they give her a giant glass of wine and, oh, yeah. uh, they also, uh, I, they throw a party later in the movie and I mm-hmm. was, I was, all I could think about as they threw a party for all their friends after everybody leaves, all I could think about was, man, I, I can't imagine having people over to my house who then mm-hmm. leave and have you mm-hmm. see that they've just dropped all their cigarette butts on your floor. I definitely ruined some, uh, kitchenware at people's houses at parties in college <laughs> that's college though these people are like in their yeah. mid-20s like early 30s and they're that's true dropping cigarettes <laughs> was that just what people did is that how I they handled it i know that my parents had ashtrays at the house i i remember this one when i was very little neither of my parents smoke but they had ashtrays <laughs> at the house because their friends smoked and so they mm. would put them out when their friends came over which is um you know, it's just a it's a different world. I ever I think about it. I think about it a lot. How before like 1995, everything just smelled like stale cigarette smoke. Yeah, that's the other thing. Is can you imagine how bad that apartment smelled afterwards? Oh God, for like multiple days. Uh, you'll also find the United Mental Force. Much, <laughs> I really like that name, <laughs> and it's it's a. Uh, I'm surprised no one else has ever used that to try to rebrand from Witch's Coven, because that definitely sounds like the uh, uh, the PR firm's rebranding of Witch's Coven, if you're like trying to run for senator or something. I mean, it sounds a little bit like what people in Heaven's Gate might have thought about themselves. That's true. It does. You know what I mean? Like a little little culty, like if, if, if Jonestown people were like, you know, this is the people's church and... Uh, we have a united mental force. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, sounds sounds right for you. Yeah, tell me more about that. <laughs> uh, and last but not least, you'll find uh, the evergreen questionable parenting. Mm-hmm. Yes, on several aspects, I think. Arguably, the movie, the patron saint of questionable parenting, <laughs> is Rosemary's Baby. I do want to talk about that more later. Yeah. Um, so yes, Rosemary's Baby. Uh, this is a very good movie. Um, <laughs> yes, and it's good right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always love the opening sequence when they're being shown the apartment because they do such a good job of very sort of discreetly showing you that something has happened there. Yeah, whether it's finding that the uh big armoire had been pushed and there's scratches in the floor or the other little mm-hmm. bits and pieces some whoever had lived there previously clearly knew something and was probably uh taken out by the the people who you meet later in the movie but it's just yeah. right away right away they they start setting things up and kind of building this level of uh tension and suspense whether it's that or it's the way that random people just start looking at Rosemary. It's it's just 
right from from the get go, it's very good. Yeah, I, I also love the like setup in this movie because, like you're saying, it's so subtle and it's clear enough that you you get the point of the big stuff that you're really going to need to know later, like the giant armoire blocking the closet and feeling like, okay, there's something going on with that closet. I'm going to keep my eye on that. Yeah. But then there are those smaller things like um, when they're touring the apartment, Rosemary sees on one of the desks handwriting that says, um, I can no longer associate myself. Right. Right. And then the sentence ends. And I didn't realize before, but I realized it this time that the way the woman who lived in the apartment dies is the same way that Hutch dies later in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah, they talk about her going into a coma, and then she never recovers. She, yeah, she, she's see? in a coma, and then she dies. Never noticed that before. Never caught that. Yeah, and there's there's so many little things like that, and it, it starts feeding you those things right away. Um, like, even the very next scene where... Um, Guy and in my head, I'm just like Mia Farrow. Um, Guy and Rosemary are having dinner with Hutch. Mm. They're having lamb and they're having wine, and that's very Catholic imagery. Oh, interesting. Yes, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's like all of that stuff, and like you could, uh, like you could do this throughout this whole movie. It's one of these movies that I love so much because you can read it like a book. Like, yes. you can pull apart the metaphors and follow. Like, you could write a whole book about the color yellow in this right. movie. That's that's the thing in this movie that everybody always cues in on, right? Like, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. have you noticed the, the color yellow is used because of the yeah. yellow wallpaper store? It's like, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. But, like, that's, like, surface level shit. That's, like, the first, exactly. first level of stuff that you can pick up in this movie. Um, you know, the, 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 the Catholic through line through everything like even even that mm-hmm. first dream that she has about yeah. the uh catholic school uh bricking up the windows i can't remember what she says about the dream when she wakes up but it's not it's not really connected to anything directly except maybe i'm not sure do you remember what she says is it something about somebody going out the window uh she's I don't remember. I remember there's a moment in the dream where she says, I told Sister Veronica about the windows and she withdrew the school from the competition. Yeah, that's I this time I couldn't totally track what that was supposed to be in reference to. But I thought maybe it was supposed to be uh, tangentially related to the um, death of the what, the girl who she meets in the basement not like causing or anything mm. but just like similar kind of imagery of like problems with a window because they say oh she must have thrown herself out a window mm-hmm. but there's there's yeah it's this you start off with this dream the dreams are such a re- uh, recurring motif and to start it yeah. with dreams of catholic school and then start going into these other twisted things it's it's there's just so much in this that you can piece apart yeah and i love the way that the dream sequences are always weaving in a little bit of what's actually happening in in real life around rosemary with her subconscious images because like the nun dream i always read that as like she's falling asleep and 
her brain is conjuring up memories of her childhood. I think she says she was raised very Catholic, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming means she went to a school where the nuns were teachers and, and all of that. But she's hearing Minnie through the wall berating right. uh, Roman because the girl they had taken in who was attempt one at Satan's bastard child um, has committed suicide and she's yelling, but the it's Minnie's voice and it's a nun speaking. And I think that's so interesting because not only is Minnie kind of diametrically opposed to a Catholic nun, she mm-hmm. is in a weird way, a satanic nun. Yeah, Absolutely. Do you know, like you, you can, and you can kind of play all these like games with imagery and metaphor all the time in this movie. And I just think it's, it's so well done. It's so eerie, but believable. Like the dreams feel like dreams. They don't feel hokey or overdone. They kind of do, at least in my opinion, really mirror the way dreams work. Yeah. Yeah. They, they do that thing that does happen in dreams that I don't really know if I've ever seen anyone really do anywhere else, which is exactly that thing where where you're seeing dream, you're you're having a dream, you're you're seeing dream imagery, but the things that people are saying are actual words that you're hearing in real life. Mm-hmm. I've always been so fascinated by that ever since uh, I, I I very clearly remember having a dream when I was much much younger, and I you know I used to listen to the radio when I would go to sleep, mm-hmm. and I remember sort of being like one quarter awake that sort of like weird middle ground where you're still dreaming but you're not 100% asleep yet mm-hmm. or still not 100% asleep still and i was having a dream and the dialogue that people were be- talking in the dream was the the things people were saying on the radio oh and <laughs> so it was i always found it fascinating because like the the processing time it would take in your brain to make whatever they're saying on the radio the dialogue of your dream just mm-hmm. seems so wacky to me like when i saw inception this is i'm sorry i'm going on a big tangent here <laughs> when i saw inception and they started getting into that thing where it's like each level of dream time passes slower mm. i started thinking like oh yeah i mean if your brain processes things in real time but feeds it to you slower i don't know i just i just started tripping out on my own dream logic but <laughs> that yeah but that is to say the dreams in this movie are very effective yeah and there's even it it does that thing that i don't know i'm, I'm sure this has happened to you in your dreams but it's definitely happened to me a lot which is somebody starts out as one person yes. and turns into another person mm-hmm and that happens a couple times in her dreams, and it's really subtle or, or like, really well done. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the period in one of her dreams where she's on deck of a boat, mm-hmm. and the captain is this kind of young, handsome guy, and he puts his hat on, and, and the camera kind of turns, and when he lowers his arm, it's Roman. Mm. And it's, like, no attention is really brought to it other than the... Like, I actually had to kind of wind it back and watch it again a couple times to be like... Wait, that was a younger guy first, though, right? Right, yeah. And then it, and then you see, and but it's, but it's not called out in a big. There's no music stinger. There's no like change in the lighting. It's just what happens in your dreams, where it's like you think you're talking to your downstairs neighbor, 
and then in your dream all of a sudden it's your sibling mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it's part of a larger thing that's so so well done in this movie of just while things aren't necessarily out and out you know capital s scary or capital t terrifying it just keeps you so uneasy and mm-hmm. starts preying on your nerves the same way it does for rosemary and yeah you never know what's real even with the dream the dream sequences when you finally get to the end most of the time they are the dream sequences they do them in like first person perspective right it's a lot of like seeing things through rosemary's eyes mm-hmm. and when you get to the final sequence when she discovers the baby's still alive they cut they go back to the first person camera and it mm-hmm. has a very similar feeling to those dreams. Yeah. Uh, and so it's kind of conditioned you for this sort of surrealist thing where they just add a little bit of sprinkle to that at the end, enough to keep you off balance as to what exactly you're seeing. Yeah, that's a really great point. I don't think I had quite pinned that down so specifically when I watched it the other night. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, this is a great movie for uh, non-focal acting. Like there, you, there's so much going on in scenes with multiple people. There's not a ton of close-ups in this movie. When when there's multiple yeah. people in scenes, they usually kind of keep it pretty wide, because most of the time the other people in the scenes are acting just as much as the focus of the scene. So the one yes. the one that I that I I pulled out this time that I really loved is uh, when Roman comes over when Hutch has come to visit and Hutch is talking to Rosemary and it's mm-hmm. kind of like a it's kind of like a two shot and the focus is the two of them talking but Roman is in the middle and you can see him and he's just like focused on Hutch in a very like it's such a subtle trying to suss out what this guy's about but he's also kind of pissed off that this guy's here there's a lot yeah. of that there's a lot of that going on yeah, and there's there's tons of moments like that, which I think is one of the things I, I kind of wanted to talk about earlier, where you were talking about how um, Polanski included a bunch of things from the book that don't necessarily have any substantive impact on, on the story. Like, mm-hmm. oh, the doctor has a, mu- a mustache when she goes back to him six months later. But I, I think these two kinds of things work really well together in this movie because it gives you more of a sense that this is really happening because that's kind of how things are in real life. Like people are not exactly the same if you don't see them for, for six months, you right. know, next time you see them, they might've changed their hair or whatever. And people in group moments, even when they're not the focus, they, they are not automatons. They don't just shut off. They are right, still right. active somehow. And it, it, it kind of reminds you that everybody has their own story going on parallel to what Rosemary's going through. And you could easily imagine scenes that are happening that we're not seeing between a lot of these other characters or an entire parallel movie, you know, from somebody else's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And and everybody else who surrounds Rosemary, um, they all have this energy that that feels very much like people who are trying not to spoil a surprise party. 
<laughs> and it's it, it all works really well because they they have that sort of nervous energy where they're trying to direct her in a certain way, but they're mm-hmm. not trying to give away the game. And I, I think it I think it it's, it becomes more apparent on rewatch when you know exactly what's yeah. going on. Uh, but it's such a it's such a unique thing because <laughs> you know even the way that I think uh, her guy her husband is the worst at it. Because he's, oh, yeah. he's always the one who's like way overcompensating and kind of like pushing yes. it over the top to try to be like, oh, yeah, you know, I was just in the area, decided to come home for lunch, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's it's it's, uh, it's so it's so great because you, the, the audience, are not I mean, even if you do understand what's going on, you are not mm-hmm. fully uh, you don't have all the information as to what or why is is happening. And so. Yeah. It just is so uncomfortable and so uneasy uh, for uh, to, to watch them really jostling her around the way that they do. Yeah, and it's so fascinating to me because I think depending on where she's at in her pregnancy, in, in sort of her attitude towards her husband and her neighbors, they treat her a little differently. When she's kind of been well-behaved... Mm. they start to ignore her. Right. Like they think she's she's complacent, she's she's going to go along, we don't have to worry about it. And they sort of don't give a shit about her in those moments, which is so interesting and I I think I noticed it a lot more this time when I realized how closely together the New Year's Eve party and then the party they have with their friends, how close in the movie that is and it really helps you draw a comparison not just between the two different groups of people mm. but between the ways they treat rosemary yeah because in that new year's party the attitude is very we got her we got it that part's done that's in the bag we don't really give a shit about her like right. M- minnie's handing out hats and sashes and stuff and she doesn't even offer one to rosemary like she does not care yeah yeah um Rosemary sat off to the side talking to her doctor about her pain and her husband is like off gallivanting and and chatting everybody up like she is not the center of that party but then when they have all these friends over who are all you know loud and mingling and socializing with one another all of them are attentive to her when she comes into a room people are congratulating her people are telling her things people are involving her in interactions and conversation in a way that no one else around her in this building does. Mm. And I think that's really telling because they, they care about Rosemary and like her for who she is. Whereas Guy and the cast, the, what are they? Castavets, um, and the rest of the Satanists don't care about Rosemary at all. She is just a vehicle for what they want. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Rosemary as a character for a bit. Mm. Um, she's she seems to be such a perfect vehicle for what they're trying to do because she is so frustrating, uh, frustratingly accommodating to everybody. Yeah. You know, she without without having a big monologue where she's like, "I just want what everybody wants: the nice picket yeah. fence, the house in the suburbs." The, the Kukai, like you get that what she is, she's not trying to make waves in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even I, I think the way that she talks about her husband is really interesting um, mm. because she does it as though it's 
it's a memorized script. And yes. it made me think this time, is this something that she has decided or is this something that he has decided he wants to be referred as? Because when, when she says uh, he's the star of Luther and nobody loves an albatross and a lot of television commercials, like it feels very put on. Like it's like this is, this is the way I'm supposed to, to introduce and, and talk about my husband. I bet you if Rosemary were real and this was a real relationship – that that is not something that she consciously set out to do or something that he insisted she did overtly. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's because there have been other times where she's talked to people about his work and what he's done and it has upset him. Yeah. Maybe she screws it this, up or something. Right, right. Or yeah. she, she she either inflates it too much and he gets pissy because he's like, you know, you're giving people the wrong impression. I'm not actually that successful Mm -hmm. or the other way around where it sounds like she's selling him short. And this is, I bet you the, 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 the sort of like workshopped in real time way that she's figured out how to talk about his career Mm. in a way that does not put him off one way or the other. But at the same time, she's very proud of him because when, when she's in the basement, the way that she, uh, she does the, leads leads with the the uh impressive sounding thing first where she says oh my husband's an actor you know and then mm-hmm. leaves at that and she's, oh what is he have i seen him and then she's like well no but yeah <laughs> uh it's 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 very interesting because like she clearly loves yeah. her husband and she clearly yes. loves their marriage mm-hmm. um and i think there is an an element of that apartment being it's so strange because because we were we were trying to figure it out last night as we were watching this how much money do these people have because it's <laughs> it's their apartment is so strange because the apartment itself is impressive but it's it it's in like an older kind of rundown building but all the rooms are very mm-hmm. impressive mm-hmm. but like their the stuff that they have is a weird mix of expensive and cheap. And mm-hmm. I couldn't tell if the cheapness was because they don't have that much money or if it was because it was the style of the time. Specifically, the headboard of their bed is just like bricks and yeah. two-by-fours or, or planks. And I couldn't tell if that was, oh, we just don't have the money for this piece of furniture or if this is the choice, this is the style to have the bricks and the wood. So my theory is that when they first move in, they don't have that much money Mm -hmm. because one of Guy's big concerns about taking the apartment is that it's more expensive than the other one they looked at. True, yeah. And I think that a lot of what they have initially in the apartment, the sort of cheaper looking stuff is there at first. Mm. And then I think once he's literally made the deal with the devil... And starts getting better parts and more money. That's like, I think as it goes, they're adding those more expensive things to their lives once he's found success. That tracks. Yeah. But I also, I I really love and, and it, (laughs) I love it because it's so well done and I hate it because it's so upsetting. (laughs) The relationship between Rosemary and Guy, Mm. because I have been in a similar not obviously not the same Mm -hmm. but a similar relationship like that where 
you're really convinced and you and you do you love somebody and you're convinced they love you the same way mm-hmm. and you have to find out the hard way that they don't right yeah and that there are all of these little moments that we get to see condensed over the course of nine or ten months of the two of them talking to each other but not really communicating right lots of little right. like no, never mind. It's fine. Or oh, if you're gonna, if you, if it's gonna become a whole big thing, I'll just eat it. Whatever. Or sure, yep. Yeah, no, we can do what you want. That's okay. And it's always this sort of placating instinct that I think she has. Mm-hmm. And I think um, a lot of that is about the time and her upbringing. I get the impression that she was probably raised pretty strongly religiously and therefore mm-hmm. conservatively she dresses like she she's got short dresses but they're all kind of girlish yeah. like she's never even when she's naked she's not sexy Ooh, sure um, yeah so she she comes off as just very very young mm. and very naive um but i i want to emphasize i think she's naive but i don't think she's stupid right yeah um, but there's one moment where in the nightmare slash rape scene, um, when, a, when she has the vision of the woman come to her while she's getting tied down to the altar mm-hmm. and the woman is saying like, Oh, we will have to do this. And, you know, please tell us if the music bothers you and we'll, we'll make them stop. And Rosemary says, Oh no, 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 please don't change the program on my account. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I think that one line kind of sums up her character throughout most of the movie, which is, I don't want to make waves. I don't want to upset anybody. I'm happy to just go along with the program until she thinks it's her baby that's in danger, not herself. Then is when she's willing to rebel. Yeah, because, you know, if you look at what she does throughout the movie, um, when she talks about her pregnancy and when she talks about uh, a lot of things... She's really only echoing things that other people have told her. She's not really forming her own yeah. opinions about a lot of stuff. So it's like, oh, yeah, they say I'm, I, they say it's normal to lose weight at the beginning, but I'll I'll feel like that kind of thing. She's she definitely is not trying to make waves and and not be suspect of anybody. And it is uh, it is not until she quote unquote starts doing her own research. Yeah. <laughs> um, when she that she starts to figure out what is what is actually going on and, and develop some agency. Yeah. And not only is she just echoing things other people have said to her, she's echoing things mostly men have said to her. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, with the exception of Minnie, there are no women really around her. And let's not forget Laura Louise. Oh, God. Laura Louise, who like visibly hates her immediately, and <laughs> I love and the whole, I love that character. I love that character too. It's so insane. It's great. Um, but you know, M- M- Minnie is interesting, and I want to talk a little bit about Minnie yeah. in a minute. But um, I find it so fascinating and heartbreaking in this movie that there are all of these men, even Hutch, who's a well-meaning man kind of telling her what to do and where to where to go and how to act and mm. how she's feeling there's a guy is telling her all the time 
oh, you need this and yeah. you're just being this way and you know, you're you're sulking and you're just tired. You need to rest. Like he rarely just lets her be herself. He he's he's always kind of trying to direct her just like the doctor is, just like Roman is. But there's this moment in the party with their friends where those three women see her kind of break down mm. and they hustle her into the kitchen, which is a stereotypically like feminine domestic sphere space. And they barricade the doors. They don't let any of the men in. And it's these three women who just listen to her and, and they, they ask her questions instead of telling her how she should be or how she should feel. Mm. They ask her these open-ended questions and, and listen to her answers. And when they hear them, they're, all unanimously kind of like that's crazy you should not have to feel this way you shouldn't have to go through this no one should expect you to deal with this alone the way you have been you 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 need help you need someone else to to help you get out of this and i think it just shows that rosemary has gone so much of her life it seems like has been under one form of like capital P patriarchy. I don't just mean like, like, oh, men. I mean like the institution of religion. Sure, I'm assuming sure. a house with a religious father. And then it looks, seems like she's gone straight into marriage and is very deferential towards her husband. He is the one with the career. He's the one who makes the decisions and says yes or no, ultimately to pretty much everything. Like he's the one who says, okay to the apartment. And that means they move in. He's the one who says, okay, let's have a baby. And that means they try to get pregnant. Right. She doesn't, she has to kind of constantly wait for his permission. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's done so subtly. And it reminds me a lot of our conversation about repulsion. Yeah. And how yeah. it's so fascinating to me that all of this has come from the mind of somebody like Roman Polanski. Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really glad we watched repulsion before we watched this because I, I had yeah. never. I, I I had never seen anything that he had done before this. I had seen Chinatown and a, and a couple other things, but um, mm-hmm. repulsion. There's a lot of repulsion in this, as far as yeah. not he's not like stealing from himself or anything, but it has the same kind of uh, unease and distrust of of people around you and and paranoia and turning in on yourself that mm-hmm. uh, that repulsion does, and it works it works very well here. Yeah, and the sort of um, making the home, mm-hmm. like the taking your home and perverting it, and taking it from a safe place of refuge and turning it into the site of your worst trauma, and yeah. it's really interesting. It like it, it's it subverts it and makes it so that the characters are paranoid at first, with or without reason, and then it just amps that way up by saying like you're not even safe at home in your own bed right right yeah what do you what do you think of the fact that she's starting to push against um the cast of vets and and even guy and her doctor until the pain stops and then once the pain stops in her stomach she basically gets back in line what do you what do you make of that i i think that's really understandable Mm -hmm. um 
Because especially with, you know, her husband, she she loves him. She's looking at him as somebody who loves her back and who cares about her. And so she wants to believe him. She wants to trust him and believe that he's right. Because it's a lot more comforting, A, to think that he does care, but also to think that he knows best. Yeah. It, it's a lot it's a lot easier. And I, th- I think that's one of the interesting things about this movie is that kind of throughout the whole thing, Rosemary is looking for somebody else to be able to tell her, I know what's best and I'm right. Mm-hmm. And you can trust me and you can listen to me and you don't need to worry about those, these things. Um, and I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense that once she feels better, she stays in line because then everybody kind of also starts saying to her, like, see, right, look, yeah. you were being silly. It did go away and now you're fine. So there's obviously nothing to worry about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I think, I think that's a big part of it uh, too, that she is, uh, you know, she's never been pregnant before. She doesn't know what the right. experience is going to be like. And I think it's playing on that element where, you know, when I, you know, I have also never been pregnant, but, uh, <laughs> not that I know of, <laughs> uh, but it's it, when you have anything that's wrong with you, right? You not that, <laughs> you know, the, the blight on the human existence that children are, um, when, when you have anything going on in your body that you're not used to and you, and you don't know of, uh, you're yeah. going to start catastrophizing things. That's why WebMD exists, you know? Yeah. And uh, uh yeah. You I'm sure you she has a a mind's eye understanding of what being pregnant is, but when it's not that, she starts to get worried and then when the pain goes away and things start to 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 go along smoothly, it's it's definitely a oh, I was just being silly. I was just, you know, every, everybody around me is right. I have just been yeah. acting crazy. Right, and all of these people who kind of present themselves as either experts or at least more worldly and knowledgeable than she is. Um, she is, like we said, kind of traditional in her marriage where she, she kind of wants to be able to defer to her husband. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, she wants to just trust him. And the cast of have set her up with the best obstetrician in the city. So, of course, you, you want to trust him. Mm. And it's kind of funny because this morning I had to go in to um, the doctor's office and get an arthrogram MRI on my shoulder. Of course, which is discovered technology yeah. discovered by Arthur C. Graham. Yes, <laughs> Arthro C. Graham. Um, <laughs> well, what, it's actually, what, what it's, that means? Uh, people have been saying it wrong. It's actually King Arthro. King Arthro. <laughs> but I'm. Ch- um, but it involves, you know, y- you go in and they target the joint and they stick a big needle into your, all the way into you, into Ooh, the joint Fun. and they inject a numbing agent and then they inject a dye. And then you go into the little narrow claustrophobic tube of the MRI machine and you have to stay very, very still for 20 minutes. And I'm going through all of this. And all I know is that my shoulder has been giving me pain for like, a year and a half, two right, years, whatever. Right. And all I know is I want it to go away. And 
these people around me are telling me these are the things I have to do so that they can tell me what exactly is wrong and figure out what what to do about it to make it go away. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> you tell me you have to jab a needle into my shoulder. All right, I'm just going to lay here quietly and wince while you do it. Right. You tell me I have to go into this tight little tube where it's extremely loud and not move. I'm all right. Guys, I'm just going to do guys, it. Guys, we got it. She fell for it. She went into the yeah. tube. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It's so easy when you're in pain, you're vulnerable. Mm. You're vulnerable to kind of manipulation or being misled by anyone who seems authoritative enough to be able to get you out of it. Yeah. At the same time, too, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it took you a year and a half to 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 get some sort of answer and that was a year and a half of going there's something wrong with my shoulder and everybody Mm -hmm. and i'm sure the people that you were seeing going like well you know you're not 15 anymore amanda you know that that kind of shit and it's like and you and you're trying to say to them no i understand that right but there's something i know my body there's something wrong and they're like well why don't you just try stretching it a bit it's like no okay i listen there is a problem you know, and right. and uh, people people know when there are things wrong, and having the people who are supposed to be guiding you through it, just sort of uh, dismissing your uh, pain and suffering, is incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and incredibly common. And I think oh, totally. Yeah. I think it happens to everyone at different times, but I think it especially happens to women. In 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 the remake of Rosemary's Baby, the real devil is the insurance company. <laughs> That's too close to real life, though. That's, that's, true, that's yeah. scary in a not fun way. Um, but also, I think it's really telling that when it's just her in pain and and she, you know, she's scared for, for the pregnancy, but it's also early enough in the pregnancy that the baby is still kind of theoretical in her head. Mm-hmm. She's willing to sort of wait it out and, and kind of wait and see. And then when it goes away, she she's she's fine and she just goes along to get along then when things start to get weird and she's worried and, and, and the baby is very close to being born. Once she's worried about the baby's safety and health, then she's not willing to just get back in line. Right, right. And I think that's really telling because I think right away she values her baby's life more than she values her own. Yeah, she starts talking to her baby, little Andy or Jenny. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and it's clear that, like, she's willing to do things for that baby that she would never do just for herself. Right. Like, throughout the movie, she's not happy in her relationship with Guy. She's not happy that the cast of vets seem to be kind of running their lives. She she seems like she wants out in a lot of ways. But she's not willing to do it until she also thinks they're trying to take her baby. Right, right. And then ultimately... Then she's like, blow up her whole life. It's fine. Right. She just has to do it for her kid. And then ultimately, the thing that gets her to come around is the motherly instinct of protecting her child, where it's mm-hmm. Roman says to her, like, yeah, Minnie and Laura Louise are too old. The baby needs a mother. And, and that yeah. is the pre- prevailing uh, driving force for her, um, which is much stronger than anything else she's been brought up to believe, apparently. Yeah, and I think that when you line that 
I really like in this movie, if you line all the party scenes up together and see how Rosemary is in each of them. Mm. Like I was saying earlier, with the New Year's party, she's she's essentially just like, she might as well be furniture. They don't really give a shit. Mm-hmm. With the party with her friends, people are attentive to her, but they don't really know how to help her. They try to right. be there for her. Right. They want to sort of support her and celebrate her. But she's very much still in distress. She's still kind of hoping for someone else to come in and fix it. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing is at the very end, at the Satanist party, when Rosemary finally kind of decides, she has that moment where she she can't resist going up to the bassinet because Laura Louise is like shaking the damn thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) back and forth, causing the uh, demon baby to scream and cry. And Rosemary knows instinctively what Laura Louise is doing wrong. And no one else does in that party. No one else understands what to do. And finally, Rosemary's kind of the one who, who has the power, who has the ability, who has the knowledge. And everybody goes silent and like watches her walk up to the bassinet. And it's like, they kind of are all seeing her in a way for the first time. Mm. I think, and and she's stepping into a role of her own volition that might not be a good role, right? <laughs> but but it's a choice she seems to be making, and it gives her a level of authority that they have to sort of acknowledge. I think at that point, at least that's how that's how I read that scene. Yeah, I want to know what the casting process was for the background for the, the extras in that final scene. Cause that guy, that first <laughs> the guy, guy with the camera, the guy with the camera. It's nice to see that not even in Rosemary's baby. Can you escape an Asian stereotype in the sixties? <laughs> um, surprise. It wasn't Mickey Rooney playing him. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but uh, the, the first guy who says hail Satan he just slaps you across the face with that. Like, it comes out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. and he's just like, hail Satan! <laughs> and it's it's so good. And I wonder if they, did they did they audition just for that role? Or did he know oh, that, like, God. this is my one line in this big budget production. I really need to lean into it here. Or It's just, it's, it, I've never, <laughs> the way that I'm he says it. Roman Polanski being like, no, more emphasis. We want more emphasis on <laughs> Satan. <laughs> I don't believe. Really hit the T. I don't believe that you believe. I need, I need someone who believes <laughs> in the Satan. Um, in the Satan. <laughs> but like, you know, it, it's, it, it uh, <laughs> did, did they have to go through multiple people? Was that the first, first guy they saw? I don't know. I would love to know, but it's, I, yeah. I, every time I watch it, when they start chanting Hail Satan, it's so, so much comes out of nowhere. And the yeah. fervor with which they say it is, I, I think the thing that makes it so surprising is that no one is doing anything particularly creepy or like malevolent. Right. They're just hanging right. out, having drinks, and then yeah, they just start still... chanting Hail Satan at the top of their lungs. Right, they're still just kind of like fancy old people. Like there's no there's no body parts strewn around the the, the apartment. There's the walls aren't covered in blood. Right. Yeah. There's no they're not naked or in robes or, you know, whatever. 
they're just hanging out. Like, it looks like the New Year's party all over again. They're all just kind of sitting around. And the thing that I love so much about that moment, too, is that you get the sense that, I mean, other than Minnie, I think Minnie's been herself this whole movie. Um, I don't think Minnie can be anybody but herself. But you sort of get the feeling that for the first time, they're all like, oh, thank God. Right. right <laughs> Like not, yeah. you know, obviously not thank God. They'd say thank Satan. But they can kind of drop the act and they can all right. just be themselves. And it's like the most natural and relaxed that that trying not to spoil the surprise party energy has finally dissipated. Exactly. Yeah. 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 What do you what uh, how, what do you think about Guy? I think Guy is a great character. I think apparently oh, yeah. apparently Cassavetes was a pain in the ass to work with, uh, <laughs> which I don't think that's the first time I've heard that. But he also he's a pretty highly regarded director in his own right. And I think there was mm. some clashing of styles. Um, yeah. I had read that Polanski had everything blocked out pretty tightly and Cassavetes was much more of a, an improvisational kind of like, let's just see what happens mm. kind of actor and slash mm-hmm. director. Um, but he's just the, the, the energy he brings to this character is just so perfect because he has to ride this line where <laughs> I said last night, he's the perfect actor for this because he has resting shit face <laughs> in that like he always yes. kind of looks like he's he's in a shitty mood and you're like, I don't know if really you can trust this guy. But but at right. the same time, he's not doing anything too outwardly menacing. And right. he's I, I I referred to it as he's got Justin Long in um Drag yes. Me to Hell energy. <laughs> yeah, and he he does this great thing where Where he had that that gesture where he leans oh, yes, over the, the, the gesture that's, with his arm. Man, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because like <laughs> he does Castavet doesn't even remember what the thing is. He's like, you. I saw you right. in this play, and you made this gesture. And he's like, oh, when I did this? He's like, yeah, sure, why not? It was great. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. But it, 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 he, he plays it so well where he reminds me of the guy who all... The guy. Um, he reminds me of somebody who, like, all through high school and college and, and, and his, like, young 20s got away with stuff because he could be charming. Oh, totally, yeah. But then now that he's an actual adult, it doesn't fly the same way. But he's he's used to people reacting to him like he's still yeah. charming. He was, and so the, ca- the cast of vets get him real fast because I think they do that really well. They play into that little bit of his ego that, that, that they know they can stroke. Yeah, he, he feels like the guy who was the quote unquote the best actor in high school. And then... Yes. Once he gets, or even college, and when he gets out into the real world, he he doesn't hit it big right away, and so he's got this he's got this ego that's been stoked for however many years that isn't quite uh, getting him where he wants to be, right? And so he's got this sort of internalized stress and anger about it that is obviously uh, <laughs> strong enough that he's willing to throw his wife under the bus at the first yeah. mention of of fame and fortune. Yeah, and I and I think it's it's so great because this movie shows both why he was charming enough that Rosemary loves him the way she does. I like I I think it does a good job of showing chemistry between the two of them and and like 
how much fun he must be when he's in a good mood. Sure, yeah. So I, I like that it includes that because so often I think movies that do this sort of thing where it's it's tension or or the ultimate betrayal comes from a spouse. Mm-hmm. You spend the whole movie being like, why does she like him? He's a piece of shit. He's right, smarmy right, asshole. Yeah. Like, why would she ever want to be with this person? And in this, you're like, no, like, I can kind of see it. Like, they're cute together. And, and he makes her laugh and, and clearly puts her at ease in situations where she feels uncomfortable. And you can see why she'd be drawn to him. Mm. But but then he also is so... Even when he's saying he's sorry and even when he's apologizing to her, you can tell it's not about her. It's about him. Oh, totally. Like, yeah. And I think it's hysterical that he wants to be this great actor, thinks he is this great actor, and yet he's the worst actor yes. in the entire <laughs> building. Yes. Like, yeah. all of the old people are much better actors than him, and he nearly gives himself away to Rosemary so many times. He can he can barely look at her. Mm-hmm. He can't stand to touch her. That's He keeps... That's my favorite bit that I don't know if I picked oh, up yeah. on before is when the baby starts kicking and she's like, here, feel it. And she pulls his hand in and he very quickly uh-huh. pulls his hand away because he yeah, obviously he like, knows what's going on. It's so good. Yeah. And he really, really is like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's great. And she's like, he's not going to bite you. Yet. Um. Yeah. <laughs> but I, lo- I, I think he does such a great job with the character because he, he walks a line that I think it would be really difficult for other actors to walk where he's, he's a good enough liar in the movie to keep Rosemary in the dark without making her seem like an idiot. Mm -hmm. But he's also a bad enough actor that he adds to that little sliver of doubt that, that kind of keeps sneaking into her mind and cracking wider and wider open. Yeah. And I, I think the way that they present him visually is really, really smart and really well done. There's a, Mm -hmm. A sense of blocking, especially towards the end of the movie, that um, really pushes him into. So once once she comes to the party, right? She he's always kind of big in the frame when they're together. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's he's clearly the more dominant one. And then yeah. once she finds out what's going on and she gets to the party, there's a couple things that happen. When she first comes in, he does this amazing move where he sees mm-hmm. her re- reacts by starting to stand up and then immediately sits back down because he knows he can't there's nothing he can say. And yeah. from that point on, you see him start to sl- push further and further into the background uh-huh. and she starts becoming larger in the frame. So I think there's one shot yeah. even where she's it's like a close up on her and you can see that he's in a doorway like in the far background. And then mm-hmm. he eventually like slinks away behind the doorway. That might even be the last time you see him. I'm not 100% sure, but they are definitely yeah, it might be. they are definitely withering him away as as you see her kind of ascend into her power and him really start to uh uh visually and it's the illustration of him realizing yeah. how shitty he's been and what he's done. Well, and I don't even think he's realized how shitty he's been. I think he's realizing that he's not. 
that this was never about him. Right. Yeah. And I think he thought this was about him. I think he spends the whole movie thinking, I did this for my career so that I can be successful. And that will let me give Rosemary and our actual children later on down the line the lives I want to give them and the life I want to have. But ultimately, this is about me and kind of what I'm owed and what I deserve. That's why all of this is happening. And then I think in that ending sequence, that's him realizing that now that he doesn't have Rosemary, nobody in that room gives a shit about him. Oh, yeah. There's there's a good chance that they kill him at some point, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean... Yeah. I think uh, if you were to make a sequel to this, and they actually did make a sequel, a TV movie that was, uh, oh boy, it's, it's got a solid three point three on IMDb. It's called "Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby." Oh boy! <laughs> and it's the one where the baby's voiced by Bruce Willis. No, that's that's a different one. Um, <laughs> but uh, like, if you were to make a sequel, I could see it being like, guy has is a washed out actor who's like a drunk now, who's yeah yapping about the antichrist and stuff you know like if it has uh-huh. a, it has a lot of that feeling to it like he is going to be kicked kicked to the road pretty quick well yeah why do they why do they need him now right you know yeah. there's there's no reason for them to keep him around he he's he's served his purpose and he's betrayed rosemary so thoroughly that you know she's literally choosing to raise the baby of the devil and she's spitting in his face right rather than because because his idea clearly of all of this was she'll get pregnant she'll have satan's baby and then we'll move on yep i'll be a successful actor we'll go to beverly hills everything's gonna go back to the way it was right right and then we'll have our family and she'll be my good little wife and she'll raise our kids and keep our house nice yeah and he he kind of tries to say that to her at the end where he's like, they told me you wouldn't be hurt and you re- look at you, you really weren't. And and now we can go, we can have our own kids and it's going to be great. And that's when she rejects him finally. And if hypothetically she does raise Adrian, Satan's, Satan's child, if she has a bond with that baby, whatever it grows into, and these people worship that baby. It, it's sort of like she's now inseparable from that right. power. Yeah, she's going to choose that baby over him. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> There's so much stuff to talk about in this movie. Um, I know. We could go on for another hour, we, I feel we like. We didn't even really talk about the cast of Vets much. Uh, mm. I, I, d- I did want to say the other thing that I really love about this, as far as the style and the, the construction of it, is... They do such a good job of seeding supporters as conspirators and conspirators as supporters. Because mm. a lot of the people who they set up the movie as doing things that seem a little bit out of the ordinary ultimately end up being the ones who weren't doing anything malevolent. And then the ones who are being overly nice and supportive are the ones who are end up being the, the malevolent ones. My like the one bit that I love is after she goes to see Dr. Hill, mm-hmm. she gets the phone call to say she's pregnant. And he's like, oh, by the way, not a big deal. If you could come in and draw some more blood and her reaction is, well, I'm pregnant, right? Why do you need more, more blood? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, mm-hmm. that's fine. It's fine. But we just we need we need some more blood. It's just like it's just weird enough that, yeah. you know, that plus like when they're coming into the hotel, 
the people who are working on the hotel are kind of eyeing her up a similar way in, as they do in repulsion when she's walking through town. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's so sad because when she finally breaks away and she finally figures it out, she goes to the one person who isn't in on it. And he ends mm-hmm. up being the one who turns her in, who, who, who drops a dime on her. And it's just so heartbreaking because, Dr. Hill is is on the up and up, but he's reacting to this as though she's completely insane. And so obviously he calls her, her her husband. But it's just it's so sad. Well, the thing that I love about that, actually, is that he clearly thinks she's kind of exaggerating or overblowing things. But until she mentions Dr. Saperstein's name up to that point, he's kind of willing to believe her. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, he says, like, I, she's like, I must sound crazy. You know, I know this all sounds ridiculous, but I swear these people are real. And he's like, well, it does sound kind of crazy, but there are crazy people in this city who are willing to do crazy things. Right, right. And so he's sort of like, let's get you into the hospital safely. Let's, let's handle this. Wait a minute. Who is the doctor you've been seeing so far? And then when he hears... Saperstein's name it's somebody who's so preeminent in his field yeah. that even he can't imagine that any of this is true and I think that feeds back into what we were talking about earlier with why Rosemary is so willing to go along with the program mm. for for so long mm-hmm. and it's because you know this doctor is the best doctor in New York City he, he's influential he's 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 essentially famous in his field and so the idea that he would be wrong or mistreating her is in this time period like patently absurd yeah so yeah i think that makes it even more heartbreaking is because not only did rosemary pick the one correct person she could have to that would that is not involved in this conspiracy she almost got him to believe her and it's only in that last second that she says just slightly the wrong thing and it that's what dooms her yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the building that they used for the apartment is the Dakota mm-hmm. building, which has quite a history. Uh, the interiors were shot at uh, Paramount Studios, but the exteriors were all shot in New York. Um, I <laughs> Do you remember your first night in your condo? Was it, was it similar to what, them where it's just like food on the floor? excuse me um it was definitely similar i think i think we had we had some furniture from our first apartment um but it was like a couch a coffee table uh a mattress on the floor Mm kind of deal so yeah yeah similar enough yeah ours ours was almost identical to this because we had no (laughs) furniture uh, I believe we were also eating Chinese food. Hmm. The only thing we had to sleep on was a air mattress that we borrowed. And oh, um, <clears throat> we didn't have any curtains on the windows or anything. And, and we were just, uh, we, 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 went to, we went to bed and our house is right on the corner of an intersection. And I didn't realize this until we shut all the lights off and decided to go to sleep. But... Uh, without curtains on the windows, every time the lights changed, 
the entire oh room God. would either be <laughs> blasted with green light or blasted with red light. And Very so soothing. Yeah. We and it was like May. It was like late May, so we had the windows open and there's no furniture <laughs> so that everything's echoing. Um where we have this air mattress that unbeknownst to us had a hole in it. Like a small hole. Oh my hole. god. And so what ended up happening was, you know, I we we both go to bed, and I obviously weigh more than my girlfriend does, and so she slept like a baby, whereas <laughs> I was just enough weighed just enough to uh, prop her up, so she had a lovely sleeping experience. But I was compressing the mattress just enough so that the uh, my, the middle of my lower back was ever so oh. gently touching the hardwood floor. Oh. It was like, it was some sort of like torture, like, like, so like you're, water you're torture. Sleeping, you're sleeping in like a slight V position. Yes. Ever so oh. slightly touching, like like getting constantly dripped water on your head, right? Yeah. And I would say, yes, I was sleeping <laughs> that way, but I was not sleeping because yeah. I was lying there <laughs> with the floor pressing into my back uh, just enough to drive me insane, staring at the ceiling as it just changed from bright green to bright red all night. And then so I th- right when I thought I was about to get to sleep, the buses started. Oh, and, no. Uh, yeah, so it was <laughs> with the next day she's like, man, that was great. I slept so well. How about you? And I was like, did we keep the receipt on this house? Can we take it back? <laughs> so your first night in your condo, was more like uh, what Alex in A Clockwork Orange goes through? Yeah, essentially, yes. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little less Rosemary's Baby and a little more that. Yeah, yeah, so. Um, I also just want to, I know we're running out of, we're running out of time, but I You get all the time in the world. Lo- I know. <laughs> it's the people who are listening that are running out of patience, I think, is probably. I know. But I, I just briefly, I also love the the ways in which other movies feed into this one. Mm-hmm. And you can pick out inspirations and little kind of references to other things. Like having the actor from, um, is, is, it, is it The Haunting of Hill House? Oh, is House on Haunted Hill, yeah. House on Haunted Hill. Having him be the landlord... Having uh, Rosemary, when she feels the baby kick, start yelling, it's alive. Oh, right. I missed that. Yeah. It's so good. Like, just, just, it weaves those little things in there in a way where it's not hokey and overdone, but it's there if you want to pick up on it. Mm. I really like that. Yeah. And there's a funny story about the, uh, um, about that, where uh, William Castle, who was the producer of, he was kind of like the, 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 horror schlockmeister of the 50s he did mm-hmm. house on haunted hill he did the tingler he did 13 ghosts <laughs> usually his movies were came along with some sort of gimmick like yeah. uh the tingler they installed buzzers into all the seats so it would zap you in the butt <laughs> and at the point in the movie where um <clears throat> the tingler supposedly escapes into the theater um he bought the rights to the book which the uh, which the writer was not thrilled about as he, he was on an interview with uh, like a talk show with Stephen King and a couple other writers. And, and he was, mm-hmm. and they were like, what did you think was William Castle bought your book? And he said, I am not thrilled hmm. because he was thinking house on haunted Hill and blah, 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 blah. And I guess mm-hmm. William Castle brought the book to Robert Evans at Paramount. 
and Evans loved it, but he said, uh, we don't want you to direct it. We're going to get Roman Polanski. And Castle was <laughs> heartbroken because he really wanted to direct it. He wanted this to be his like yeah. stepping stone into more legitimate movies. Oh, yeah. And uh, but he stayed on as a producer, and the the writer was much happier when they said Polanski was going to do it. But uh, he, uh, William Castle is actually in the movie in the scene where Rosemary's in the oh. phone booth doing fantastic telephone improv. <laughs> the guy who walks in front and like stands with his back to the telephone booth oh. that's William Castle oh that's fun which uh, and I have to think that this is on purpose you're talking about movies feeding into other movies mm-hmm. in The Howling which was directed by Joe Dante who is mm-hmm. who was a student of the Roger Corman filmmaking uh, company at the beginning of the movie, when D. Wallace is in a phone booth, person waiting outside the phone booth to use a phone booth after her is Roger Corman. So I have oh. to I have to assume that that is a direct reference to Rosemary's Baby. In that specific, that's the kind of thing that Dante would definitely know that that was William Castle. You know, like that's mm-hmm. the kind of cameo callback that I could see him doing. Yeah, and I I think. I think if we were to get into the lineage of the movies that came after Rosemary's Baby, that that O a lot to it. Oh, it yeah. would be a very, very, very long list. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, this is, uh, it's one of those films where there's speculation. It's funny how this, this happened a lot in the late 60s, early 70s, particularly with, I guess it makes sense, particularly with the movies that were devil-centric. But mm. this is one of those movies where people think is cursed because of the things that, that happened uh, after it. This is obviously a big one considering Mm -hmm. that Polanski's wife Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family very soon after this yeah but uh, there's a couple other weird things Uh, the composer Christopher Comita died mysteriously after a three-month coma which is exactly how Hutch dies in the movie wow and uh, the woman that's uh, Rosemary meets in the basement. This is this is a weird kind of story, but yeah, the, she's billed as Angela Dorian, and in the movie, Rosemary says to her, "You look like Victoria Vetri, the actress." Victoria mm-hmm. Vetri is that actress's real name. Oh, I don't know why she's billed as Angela Dorian. Huh? But she was apparently good friends with Sharon Tate. And she was supposedly supposed to be at the house the night that the Manson family showed up, but she stayed home for some reason. I don't know. I'm not sure why, but I nothing suspicious, but she just decided not to go. Yeah. But, yeah, she just wasn't feeling like it. Yeah, it's one of those one of those weird little bits of synchronicity and stuff like that. Wow. And of course... Did you hear... Oh, go ahead. Oh, did did you hear the rumor of who uh, who's in the Satan costume? Oh, th- yeah, it was a rumor that it's Anton LaVey. <laughs> Yeah, that's, it wasn't. No, that seems to not be true. But that is no, it's not. But it's a it's a, it's a fun rumor that went around for a while. Yeah, that, uh, Anton Lavey was the one dressed up as Satan, and that he took the costume with him after the movie. Man, talk about being in the right place at the right time for that guy. That like he <laughs> that guy is that guy's so lame. <laughs> but he was at the he was at the right point in the zeitgeist where people were like into the occult and shit, and he just yes. rode that stuff to the bank. Yep. 
Um, and of course, the other big one regarding things in this movie is the Dakota building, which is where John Lennon lived when he was shot and killed by uh, mm. Chapman, Mark David Chapman. <clears throat> I actually have a weird story about the, the Dakota building myself. Um, oh. I went to school in New York, and I forget where I was. I was in Manhattan for some reason. And I was walking with my friend down a street, and we walked by the front of a building, and there was just this something really, a very creepy, morose kind of vibe came over me as I looked over and saw this building with this big archway, stone archway, and these kind of low-light candle like uh, lanterns in the front of it. I'm like, oh, that's that's a really creepy front of that building. And then once we got to the end of the street, I realized where we were, and I said, oh my god, that was the Dakota building. That was where John Lennon got shot. Mm. Like we walked right by it, and that was for I don't know. It was just the perfect time of night to make it seem extra creepy, and the location, the location being what it was, uh, you know, gave me a bit of a chill. But spooky. Um, yeah. The uh. I, is there anything else you want to talk about before I read these reviews? I I feel like there's so much, there is that, so we much could, yeah. that we could keep going, but we should probably start <laughs> towards an end at this point. So please read, read, read the reviews. Well, this is from May 11th, 2022, and it says, What a bore. What? It can't <gasps> be. Nope. This movie actually sucks. I've heard so many good things about this movie, and after watching it, I can say it's old. This isn't a timeless movie and feels like a late 60s, early 70s movie in a bad way. If you like slow burn movies, this is one of them. But for me, no thanks. And the acting back then is weird, too. Mia Farrow talks like she's British for some reason, even though it takes place in the U.S. and watching these old movies. I think it's just how people talked at that time. Not a fan. In the end, I'm not a fan. The idea that her husband joined a cult... She should have went in a taxi to her parents or something, but she was caught so easily. She could have got away. I bet it was easier back then compared to now, you know, cell phones. Anyway, I can't believe this movie sucks. Very disappointing. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And the, uh, what a cogent analysis. <laughs> the uh, second one from April 9th, 2022. Talk about a boring movie. They rate this movie in the top 10 scariest of all movies of all time. Why? It's not scary at all. I get it. Having the devil's baby is scary. Yeah, if it were a real life thing. But the fact it was a movie is kind of (laughs) lame. But wait, wait, wait. By by that logic, no movie could ever be scary unless it's literally a documentary. That's my favorite part about it. It's like, well, yes, the concept of having Satan's child is terrifying if it were to really happen. But if it's just a movie, so it's stupid. I watched it numerous times, so everyone knew the woman was having Satan's baby but her. That's fine. It doesn't make the movie scary, though. The actress that played the woman having Satan's baby was a very good actress, but I honestly just thought the movie was lame. I mean, he might as well have just called her the female. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. um, It's it's so strange, because I feel like that this... I don't know if it's... I don't want to I make gross you, assumptions you, about people, but it, I, this last person said they watched it numerous times. I don't know. It does, do you think that this movie is as holds up as well as I think it does? I think if you were like a 13-year-old boy and you watched this, you'd come away being like, that's not scary. Yeah. Do you know, like, I, I really, I really do think it's the kind of thing that if you're younger and you're sort of going into it expecting it to be 
I don't know, like, like, like a gore fest or something scary in the way that like the descent is scary, then yeah, I, I can just see it not hitting for, for specific demographics. But I feel yeah. like if you are willing to put yourself in Rosemary's shoes, even a little bit and kind of do what you should do with most movies, which is suspend your disbelief, then you can pretty quickly start to see why it's so disturbing. Yeah. You know, I it, it's it brings up an interesting question about scary movies too, right? Cuz it's like it's a it's a very subjective thing, and I know mm-hmm. people who this kind of stuff just doesn't work on them. Like heart like demons and satan stuff. I had a friend in college who who was like I, I th- probably I think we were talking about The Exorcist or something, and she was like, oh, that, that movie was stupid. I didn't find that scary. I don't find religious stuff scary. And then I said, well, what what do you do find scary? Said, Scream. That's the scariest movie I've ever seen. Because it's huh. much more based in something that could theoretically, quote unquote, happen. You know, It's more yeah, about sure. a real person doing real crime and, and, and actively killing people and no supernatural. There's no reason why it's something like that couldn't happen in real life. And so right. I wonder you, if that's you don't part need of it. to suspend your disbelief quite so far. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I, I, I can see that. I do. I do think it's it's an interesting. It's an interesting question because it is like comedy. It's very personal to you and your experience and sort of how you see the world. Right. Yeah. What you might find scary and disturbing and what doesn't really hit for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like. If the if the people who wrote these reviews said their favorite movie was like The Conjuring, then I would give them a little bit of a stink eye, though. If that's if that's where we're going, but but again, as we've talked about, there's so much other stuff, excuse me, in here that is worth that is just so well done and is so yeah. uh, disturbing in a way that isn't the high concept, and I think that's something. St- some people have difficulty with too is just kind of stopping at the high concept um mm-hmm. as you know as that one person said the idea that she's pregnant with the devil's baby oh that's stupid it's like okay well <laughs> all right well then obviously we're not going to get we're not going to get you here if that, that's where you're stopping and you're not appreciating or right. you're not willing to look at everything else that's that's been done filmmaking wise and tension wise and stuff in this movie <clears throat> Right. And it's it's really too bad for people who are closed off in that way, especially to a movie like this that has such a su- such a clear lineage down through modern horror movies yeah. and continues to sort of inspire different things and be referenced by different things. You're really if you're not willing to at least appreciate the work and the detail that's gone into this movie and the ways in which it spurred other things you're really like cutting yourself off from a whole section of of the genre yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, it's tough though too cuz like we're getting into the period of time where this movie is almost 60 years old, like 55 years old or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's uh, like imagine most people weren't watching movies from 55 years ago when we were in high school, you know. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm curious to see how this stuff holds up as uh, as we go forward, but it's I think this is it's this is number twenty seven on our list. How do you feel mm. about that placement? Placement because obviously we're keeping <laughs> it on the list. 
Oh, right, right. That placement actually makes me mad. I feel like this one should be top 10. I would agree. I think 27 is criminally low for this. Yeah, because I skimmed the list earlier this afternoon to look at what was between it and number one. And while there were some pretty good ones in there, there were some where I was like, look, don't get me wrong. A Quiet Place is great. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect one that I would definitely flop. Yeah. <laughs> I really love, I really actually really enjoy that movie. I think it has a lot to recommend itself. We've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. But if you want to compare it to the impact that it has had on all of horror, <laughs> yeah. to a movie like Rosemary's Baby, it's just like, you're not just, you're not there. Like, please put this one at number five or whatever right. A Quiet Place is at and put A Quiet Place at 27, which is a very respectable spot. Right. Like... <laughs> I, I really enjoyed The Invisible Man from 2020. I don't yes. think it's the number ninth scariest movie ever made <laughs> or best scary movie, especially not compared to Rosemary's Baby. So, Right, right. I mean, I guess it's not, at least it's not as bad as where they put The Shining. So True. Yes. You know, that what's interesting, I, I was, I, I was going to bring that up. I forgot to. Um, Kubrick loved this movie. Hmm. And I, I feel like you can see a lot of this in The Shining, uh, maybe not in in obvious ways, but I think I think he takes a lot of this background um, uneasiness stuff from from this, like the way that the the layout of the overlook doesn't make any sense, or the way that mm-hmm. props just move between takes. You know, I, yeah. uh, or the thing that I sent you the other day about for some reason Jack Torrance keeps looking into camera throughout the movie yeah. even if like it happens enough times where it feels like it must be intentional and it's just mm-hmm. one of those things that is just unnerving enough that it's not going to it's probably more subconscious than anything else but it's going to keep you kind of like off kilter a little bit so it doesn't surprise right. me to to find to hear that yeah um speaking of the greatest horror movies of all time in their placement <laughs> i have hit the <laughs> randomizer button beep boop, beep beep, 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 beep. And we have landed on number five. We're continuing with our heavy hitters. We're going to be watching Alien. Oh. Oh, shit. Yeah, which I'm kind of shocked. Part of me was like, did we already do that? I remember Wes and I had <laughs> talked about Alien multiple <laughs> years ago, but it's I don't know if I've watched it since then, so I'm looking forward to, to, get, to diving into that one. I love that movie. Yeah. It is one of my personal top ten. So I've seen it a lot. I'm very stoked to talk about it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, if uh, if you'd like to help support the show, head over to patreon.com slash the Penske file and uh, sign up for our Patreon. You can get an extra podcast every month from us where Amanda and I are covering Video Nasties films this year. And last year we did the second string of Stephen King. And the year before that, we did the entire Friday the 13th series. So if that interests you, head on over there. Check it out. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Come listen to me slowly go insane while we cover all the Jason movies. Yes. And just, and listen to me try to figure out what it is about 50s greaser car culture that Stephen King finds so terrifying. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Clyde. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.